0: In the 1993 film, The Fugitive, Harrison Ford is arrested for murdering his wife. He's uh, convicted, he's on the bus on his way to prison, and he breaks away uh, after a crash. And he is a fugitive on the run from the law. The man who is after him, the head of law enforcement, is none other than Tommy Lee Jones, and he intends to get his man. Now, The compelling storyline of this film is that Harrison Ford did not kill his wife. Someone else did. So he is a wanted man for murder, but he did not commit murder at all, and he is determined to stay alive. Not only to stay alive, but he's going to do the detective work to find who the actual murderer was. The situation in 1 Samuel chapter 21 is similar. We have someone who is on the run, a fugitive, where those who have authority, those who have power, those who have the ability to take him out, to take his life, are are after him. And this, of course, is David, who will, in very short order, become, and in a sense has already become, uh, the, the greatest king in ancient Israel's history. He's on the run, not for some confusion about a crime, he, he, he's not on the run because he did uh, something terrible, in fact, it's the opposite. The Lord has been with him in powerful and significant ways and has given David tremendous success. And King Saul is so determined to hang on to power and does not want this guy to take the throne and he wants to kill him. And so David is a fugitive on the run. And when you are a fugitive on the run, you do a lot of things that you would not ordinarily do. And that is what we have in today's text. We have a variety of themes in today's short passage. I want to give you a heads up. We're going to be faithful to the text and the Word of God here, but there isn't like one clear beaming theme. There's a variety of themes, and then there's a a problem that the careful reader is supposed to see and work through in this text. So let's go ahead, hopefully you have your Bibles open, or if you have your phone with you, you can Google 1 Samuel 21, and we're just going to be going through the first few verses here. Let's go ahead and jump into it. 1 Samuel 21 and verse 1, as David is on the run as a fugitive. So it says in verse 1, David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, Al-Himelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Well, let's begin with these questions. Uh, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? I mean, it's kind of like if if the President of the United States uh, knocked on your door and there's like no Secret Service, there's no entourage, there's nobody with him. He doesn't just like walk around town the President of the United States, and, and knock on a door alone. He, he travels with security. He travels with an entourage. He is a man of significant power and authority. And David has been in charge of vast numbers of soldiers and has had phenomenal success in battling this superpower, the Philistines. And, and so he shows up in Nob, Back to verse 1, which is, if you will, the, the Jerusalem of the time. The temple isn't built yet. Shiloh has been destroyed. So Nob is the spiritual center, the capital, if you will, where the priests and, and where worship happens. And so this prominent leader shows up and notice the priest there, el trembles. Uh, he trembles at him, not because he's going to take him out, but in, in a sense of, of, of awe and, and, and respect for this unbelievable person whose God's power has been working so so, magi- so so unbelievably. He's taken out Goliath. He's taken out huge, vast numbers of troops. He's just done un- re- unbelievable things, supernatural things. It's kind of like uh, Samuel, who was, who's the senior spiritual le- leader in Israel at this time, Samuel did uh, what the Lord said when he arrived at Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled when they met him. The, 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 the priest here is, is, is trembling. And one of the things we're supposed to see here is just the extraordinary nature of David. But the careful reader knows it's not really about David, but it's about the God who has empowered David and the spirit of the Lord that is upon him. Go ahead and jump your eyes down. We're going to do the last couple of verses next, verses 8 and 9. Look with me at verse 8 of 1 Samuel 21. At the end of today's unit of Scripture, and we're just going through verse 9, uh, David asks Ahimelech, uh, Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon, because the king's business was urgent. Now, we'll get to this more in a moment, but David is... is Lying here, just to be direct, uh, King Saul's business is not urgent, and that's not why he is there. He's a fugitive on the run. He chooses not to tell the priest this, maybe to protect the priest, maybe to protect himself, likely both. But he asks for a weapon. He goes to the 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 equivalent of the house of the Lord or the temple. The temple isn't built yet, but he's going to this place, this the central place of of worship, and he, he's looking. For a weapon, he doesn't have anything with him. And it's interesting, the priest happens to have a weapon, which you wouldn't think he would. Look at verse 9. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Allah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, there is none like it give it to me so there is symbolism here the reader knows that david even though he hasn't taken ascended to the throne he is essentially already king in god's eyes he has been anointed by samuel he has been given uh, the, the, the robe of the prince, his close friend Jonathan. He's been given his sword, but all of that is gone now because he is a fugitive on the run because Saul wants him dead. Some people will do anything to maintain power, including killing someone. And so he's asking for a weapon, and he gets the sword of this great warrior who he took out, uh, Goliath. So we are seeing here that David is an extraordinary king and an extraordinary person. And as I already mentioned, we know he is extraordinary because God is with him in this moment. If you look on the screen at chapter 16 and verse 13, it says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power, in power. David did things in power and miraculous strength of the Lord, and this is what is causing this, this trembling, if you will, of the priest as he shows up. First Samuel 16, a reminder, "The Lord is with him," that little phrase. "The Lord is no longer with King Saul. Saul is, has turned away from the Lord, and the Lord, the spirit of God has departed from Saul, but the Lord is with David." And then second Samuel 7:16, to jump ahead. David is not only with the Lord, but David is going to be used in a massive and significant way as we get into this passage and in, in this chapter um, in the year 2023, which is right around the corner. It says in 2 Samuel 7, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. David's house and kingdom shall endure before me, before God, forever. Your throne shall be established Forever. Now that is big language, and we're, we're, we're jumping ahead here, but I'm wanting to show just what an extraordinary individual David is, and what this is referring to is that not that David is going to live forever and reign on the throne in Jerusalem, But David is going to point to a greater David, the son of David, the Messiah, Jesus, who is going to come, is of the house and lineage of David. And so there is a royal and even eternal dynasty. So David is pointing to the greater David. He is an extraordinary king. Well, and an extraordinary person because the Lord is with him. But David is not the Messiah. He is not God. He is not perfect. And he, uh, we see that in verses 2 and 3. Let's come back and look at the text here. 1 Samuel 21, 2 and 3. So he's asked this question, you know, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? He, he's shown up at the spiritual headquarters here, so David gives an answer. He answers the priest, Ahimelech, and he says, the king charged me with a certain matter and said to me, no one is to know anything about your mission And your instructions. So just to pause here for a moment, what's going on? He he's inventing a story so the the priest will have some explanation in his mind as to why David is here without his his troops, uh, without his entourage. He's on this secret mission for the king. Back to the text. As for my men, uh, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. So David's got no weapon. He's got no troops. He's got no protection. And he has no food. David is hungry. And he's asking for five loaves. I think not because he's going to eat five loaves of bread, but because he's created this story and he's going to rendezvous with his men and just give me whatever I can carry. Do you have five loaves of bread or whatever you can find? Now the reader is supposed to notice here in these verses that David has invented this story, as I've already mentioned, probably in part to protect himself and probably also to protect Ahimelech. So David is not only an extraordinary king, an extraordinary person, but David is an ordinary person. He's he's like you, he's like me, and he is, is lying here. There may be some good motives, We're not, we don't know his motives, there may be some very good motives here, but he's lying and he has invented the story. And so there is this tension in the person of David, but this all begins with this, this trembling of the king, uh, rather trembling because of the future king David, this trembling of the priest Ahimelech. And this reminds us of a theme throughout scripture where people tremble in the presence of, of incredible people and often pay too much respect and honor and look and, uh, to, to, to individuals. And I think this is partially what's happening with the priest as he's trembling as, as David comes there. David, on one level, is a man just like every one of us. And as human beings, we have a tendency to put people on pedestals. This is nothing new. It has been happening for a long time, and we see it happening throughout the Scriptures in John chapter 1, there was this guy, uh, you probably uh, know of him if you've been around the church any period of time, John the Baptist. And this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to, to ask him who he was. And these, uh, these priests and Levites went to see who he was because, like David, he, he was standing out in an extraordinary way. And people have been waiting and longing for the Messiah. And they, they mistakenly thought, uh, John must be it. And so there was, there was trembling and awe and tremendous interest in John the Baptist. But they go out to see John, and he did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Christ. This tendency to make too much of human beings, we see it when David arrives in Nob. We see it in John the Baptist. We also see it in Acts chapter 14. Many of you will be familiar with this uh, as well, with Paul. Paul has just done this incredible miracle, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So we see throughout Scripture this, this trembling and, and awe before human beings. And it's a reminder of how God has made us for something more than ourselves. And all human beings, we have a tendency to long for and, and, and worship something, something beyond us. There's got to be something more to this. And we're looking for saviors, for something to worship, for something more than what I'm experiencing in this life. C.S. Lewis has often quoted a line from Mere Christianity. He writes, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You and I were made for another world to live forever and ever in the presence of God. And so we have these longings, and sometimes these longings coming out by, by putting people up on pedestals and looking up to them in a way that we ought not to, trembling before individuals instead of trembling before the God who made them. We all have these longings inside of us. As I mentioned, quite a few uh, different themes in today's passage, but are you guys tracking with me so far? You guys awake? Do we need to do, like, play some music or something? Okay, we're getting to like the, the dilemma. There is a dilemma uh, in this passage that the reader is supposed to see and to work through, and that comes out here in, in verses four through six. So David has made this story. He's hungry. He doesn't have anything, and he's asked the priest for food, Ahimelech. So verse four, the priest answered, David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, or showbread here, provided the men have kept themselves uh, from women. Or a better way to translate that would be provided the soldiers have kept themselves from women. The idea here is not that it's a bad thing for husbands to be with their wives, but there is an uncleanness in the Old Covenant when this happens. And particularly this was emphasized when men went off to war. You were to have a single focus of caring for that guy on your right or left and, and defeating the enemy. This was not a time to be with your wife. So he, he's saying, I have some bread here, but it's not ordinary bread, assuming uh, the, the guys are, are, are good to go. Verse 5, so David replies, indeed, women have been kept from us, from us soldiers, as usual. This was not only a custom for, the, for Israelites, but in the ancient Near East, this was, this was just what the culture was like when, when men went to war. So, so yes, they've been kept from us whenever I set out, whenever I go out to battle. Continuing on, the men's things are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? Verse 6, so the priest gave him the consecrated bread. Since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now you see the dilemma, of course. Do you see it? Maybe not. So here's the dilemma. Say, no, we don't see it. So we don't don't see the dilemma here. So let me help you see the dilemma here. So the scriptures say that this bread is only to be eaten by priests. So it is a violation of the word of God for someone other than a priest to to eat this bread. Uh, Leviticus chapter 24, verse 9, It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. So only Aaron and his descendants, the priests, can eat it, and they've got to eat it in a holy place. For it is most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. So the person who knows the Scriptures who's reading 1 Samuel 21, goes, why is the priest going against Leviticus 24, 9? Or why does it seem like he's willing to go against? Uh, and in verse 6, he does go against Leviticus 24, 9. Uh, this is a picture here of what the bread would have looked like. In verse 6, says the priest gave him consecrated bread. So, so one issue in this dilemma is why does he do that and then the other issue is, why does he do that? But he seems to be concerned about ceremonial cleanness. Uh, so this, how does this fit together? When a man, this is also from the scriptures. Leviticus 15, when a man lies with a woman, both must bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. So he's wanting to stick to this, that you can't partake of this bread if you're unclean. But he's going to give the bread to a non-priest. So what is going on here? What does God, what does this have to do? <laughs> uh, maybe some of you are thinking this, and this would be good. What does this have to do with your life? What does this ancient text about these ceremonial rules and laws have to do with our, our lives? And I want to say it actually has a lot to do with our lives. I want to jump into the New Testament, which is really important to do as we're reading the Old Testament. So look with me on the screen at Matthew chapter 12. It says there, this is going to help us resolve this tension. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. So there's a common theme with what's going on in David's life. He he, he's hungry, he needs food. So Jesus' disciples are hungry, and they began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were experts at creating and extending detailed laws and then pointing out to people when they broke those laws. Now, the truth of the matter is that Jesus and his disciples are not doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. It is unlawful to to farm on the Sabbath or to work on the Sabbath in the general sense of doing work that you would do in a six-day work week in those times. And with a one day off, you are to rest from your work, but it is not a violation of Scripture, to pick something off of the tree or the bush and to put it into your mouth and eat. But they are criticizing Jesus for this. And look at his response. This is an interesting response. He answers, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He is referring now to 1 Samuel 21. He's not only saying implicitly that you're wrong about me and my guys, but you misunderstood what, what 1 Samuel 21 is communicating. Have you not read it? What David and his companions, his theoretical companions, who he's going to give the bread to when he meets up with them on the secret mission, didn't you read what happened there? Jesus goes on, he entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. So what is going on here again, and what does this have to do with our lives? So one thing, the Pharisees' approach to the Old Testament was wrong, and it could not explain the incident of David. What the incident of David here eating the bread, and more importantly the priest allowing him to eat the bread, is getting at is this complex situation where showing mercy to a neighbor in need of food or clothing or shelter Helping a person in need takes priority over ceremonial laws, even when the scriptures are very clear and right and good about those ceremonial laws. This is an important principle for you and me to understand for today. That is, human need takes priority over ceremonial law. Human need takes priority over ceremonial law or religious regulations or the, the kinds of things that would in other situations uh, be important. Uh, one, one commentator puts it this way, this first and then that. So this first means we're taking care of a human who's in desperate need here, who needs food, and then we will worry about the regulations of the showbread and so on. It's not that those ceremonies or those rules or regulations were wrong. So this is is important for you and for me to understand. It comes back to what is most important about the law. Look with uh, me at Matthew chapter 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the summary of the entire law. These two commandments can summarize all of the Torah. In verse 40, Jesus says this, On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Ahimelech didn't need Jesus to explain this to him. He knew that loving God and loving his neighbor and David has become his neighbor who shows up with nothing and who is hungry, that that takes priority over these other things that are also legitimate that are described in the Scripture. D.A. Carson puts it this way, nothing in Scripture can cohere or be truly obeyed unless these two commandments are observed. Loving God And loving our neighbor are the reasons for all of these other commandments. And so that is why Ahimelech gives the food to David because of this basic need of hunger. And this is important for you and me to understand so that we aren't distracted with, with details or ceremonial things and neglect what is most important, loving God and loving our neighbor. It's probably helpful at this point for me to briefly define our neighbor. The way the New Testament defines our neighbor, of course, there's a literal just our neighbors are our neighbors. But you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the most well-known passages in Scripture. There is a Jew who is in desperate need, who who is half dead. And there is a Samaritan. These are two races that don't normally interact. And that Samaritan goes out of his way to care for him because he is his neighbor. One of the main points of that parable is to teach you and to teach me who is my neighbor. My neighbor is someone who is nearby me who is in desperate need. That is my neighbor. And the priest knows this. And so he, he does what is primary and he gives David the bread. Ahimelech resolves a complex situation by showing mercy to a neighbor in need of food, clothing, and shelter. And that is one of the reasons that this passage is here for us to see that and to live out the greatest commandment in our lives. Well, there is one other verse we need to hit today before we finish up, and it's verse 7. Now, if this were made into a film... Verse 7 would be the scene where, where the camera pans over into the, like, the dark woods or the forest or something, and there's like a bad guy lurking there, and nobody knows who he is, but you're just kind of told there, there, there's, there's this, this guy there, this bad guy. And we see this. This is what verse 7 is. Look at it with me. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained. He was there that day in Nob. He's detained before the Lord. He was Dog the Edomite, Saul's head shepherd. This is a bad dude. You ever known anyone have the name Doeg, D-O-E-G? Anybody? anybody met, met? This is not the name you want to choose uh, for one of your children. We're going to see uh, what he does uh, later um, as we take a break. Next week, moving into Advent, we'll get back to First Samuel in 2023. But we're just kind of given a little picture that this bad dude is there, and he has watched all this happen. He is a spy for King Saul, and he's going to be a major player in the next chapter, and he is going to do great evil at Saul's command. We don't have time to get into that today, but we will get into that. But we simply see uh, that this man is there watching, and there is a reason that David is on the run, because he is afraid of someone just like Dog uh, seeing him, reporting him, taking his life, and in fact, King Saul has someone there to do that. So, what God has for us out of his word today is to understand the priority of showing mercy to people who are in need. Now, as I thought about this passage as we finish up today in my own life, I can't think, thankfully, this is not a normal practice, that is to not follow this passage and to follow this passage. In fact, in my life, I can't think of that ever occurring. This would be an extraordinary situation and an extraordinary time, but in other people's lives and in history, there are all kinds of places where this happened. Uh, You've watched uh, World War II films and and what was going on in in Europe and in Germany. Uh, During World War II, there were not many, but there were some who would hide Jews in their attic, for example... And the Nazis would come knocking on the door, and you at that moment, and they come knocking on the door asking, is there any Jews here? We've had a report. And you answer that door as a Christian, and here's an example of a complex situation that I've never been in, but a kind of situation that this priest was in, and a kind of situation people were in during World War II in Germany. Jesus teaches your yes is yes and your no is no. We should speak the truth. That is what the Bible teaches. The Bible also teaches the importance of protecting and saving human life. And these two things come into conflict. And many people in that moment would would follow the greatest commandment of loving their neighbor is in need and would come up with some story to send them away. To send the Nazis away because they understand what is most important when it comes to living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is loving God and loving my neighbor who is in need. It doesn't diminish at all the priority of telling the truth. But this is one of the reasons that we have today's passage, is for us to understand this and to be able to think in a big way, knowing what is most important to the Lord. Let's bow our heads and ask God to help us to live in light of these greatest commandments. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that our responsibility is is, is not to, to, to follow in a legalistic, pharisaical way all of these various regulations. But at the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to love you and to love our neighbor. And in extraordinary circumstances, loving that neighbor takes a priority. We thank you for what Ahimelech did. We thank you for preserving David's life to this point. And we thank you for your word that opens our eyes so that we would not be mistaken about what is most important in life. Help us to love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.